From the heart of Bed-Stuy, you're listening to We Love Radio. Doing the ying and the yang, the hip and the hop, the stupid fresh thing, the flippity-flop. Oh! I have today's forecast for you, hot! Talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to a movie reviewing, reappraising, and genre hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. This is Be Real. My name is Chance Pfeiffer, And I'm Noah Ballard. And we are here in the year 2021 uh, at the well, of a midway point-ish of a, of a pretty hot summer, Noah. We got this idea uh, when we recorded an episode a few weeks ago where you and I had basically both sweat through our clothing. Uh, we're going to try to do a mini pod afterward and just simply could not do it. And then I think afterward you texted me like, hey man, what if we did a podcast where all the movies were super hot? And here we are. Yeah. And I made it really specifically, parenthetically, by accident. Uh, <laughs> these movies are all about beating the summer heat in New York City. Oh, my God. If you can melt into a sewer there, you can do so anywhere. That's quite right. <laughs> yeah. If you can perspire through your clothing here, you can do it anywhere. Yeah. Uh, and so, of course, we picked 1955's The Seven Year Itch. Uh, do the right thing from 89 and from the same year i can't believe we haven't done this movie already weekend at bernie's you would have thought that we teed up some sort of like dead man on campus kind of category with weekend at bernie's but we had not well maybe we should just stop recording right now to save we'll go it do that me. episode let's just go do that episode we'll do it in the fall sure that makes sense um so noah i think that these movies are all about uh, heat, sy- psychosis of the heat. Are they not? Yeah. Oh, like raptures of the heat? <laughs> A little bit. Yeah, definitely. No, it's all about the crazy you get when you're so dang hot that mm. like there's nothing else to be done. A lot of id ventures forth, I would say. Yes. Um, just as some set dressing at the top. I mean, Portland had a record-breaking heat wave, like unheard of to have like three days in the like 108, 112, 115 uh, area in a part of the country where the average summer temperature is like 77 and most homes don't even have air conditioning. But then like right at the end of that, New York had a terrible heat wave and you'll probably have a couple more (laughs) this summer if we're being honest. Um, What does it do to you? I feel great. Uh, oh, great. Unaffected. Perfect. Then I'll answer. Unaffected. Um, <laughs> I have air conditioning in every room. Uh, we just don't look at the electricity bill. No, it's it's interesting because like being outside, especially in New York, like at, it's like inescapable, mm-hmm. you know, especially if you're at the mercy of public transportation, which like in other times I certainly would be. But like just like gasping between overly air-conditioned office building and then like you run around to the subway stop and then like usually the subway itself is like not that cool and it's like you're trying to look nice but you're soaked in sweat 
it's yeah it, it really is is something truly awful i don't know why people would spend a summer here um which has of course yielded a lot of these movies mm-hmm. <laughs> um i do find that there's weirdly like something comforting and quaint which is odd to say with most of these films though are about how like people still manage to be around other people as dangerous as that is it's like kind of everyone's in the same boat and i gotta say uh at the heat wave in the pacific northwest last month it was just a lot more apocalyptic it was just like no one on the street for days and days and days um and people were like sh- you know sheltering and several hundred people died um so there's something, uh, yeah, there's something perversely comforting about, like, at least these people uh, in these movies are going to the movies and getting in squabbles with their neighbors, and at least people have other people. Well, it's interesting, too, to look at all three of these movies through the lens of the way the climate is changing and, like, where the tension erupts in these movies and how kind of terrifying all of them are knowing that this is just kind of the beginning of a longer series of conflicts, whether they be, you know, as, uh, you know, unimportant as the, the battle of the sexes and married couples, or it's like, you know, the way people go about eating pizza and living their daily lives. Weekend at Bernie's not a climate change film. I don't know how hot it is supposed to be in the other two, but it is in Do the Right Thing, which I think does the best and the most with the temperature. And Spike does the shot of all the different uh, newspapers with their with their heat wave puns. I think it's only like ninety nine though. To be to be frank, isn't that isn't it say ninety nine a hundred? Yeah, and even and even then, it's it's too it's too dang hot. I'm gonna take it back about Weekend at Bernie's though, because there is a scene where Andrew McCarthy's like, I didn't know the tide was gonna come up so <gasps> high. You're right. So like, and it's like, well, you didn't know that because of the rising sea levels because of climate change. And that is so, why Bernie's corpse drifted up behind uh, Silverman and uh, that woman who looks like Allison Williams when they were making out. Incredible! Incredible! Well, Noah, it was 130 degrees in Death Valley over the weekend. That's a new record. So uh, why don't we why don't we jump into this show, title for title, shall we? Careful! I had my appendix out last year. <laughs> it's the funniest comedy since laughter began. Of a wife who spent the summer away, and a husband who stayed home to play and play and play. Because now I'm going to take you in my arms and kiss you very quickly and very hard. Wait a minute! With Marilyn Monroe soaring to new heights as the screen's most lovable laugh getter. Everything's fine. A married man, air conditioning, champagne and potato chips. It's just a wonderful party. Tom Ewell, who created the original role on Broadway. Evelyn Keyes, Sonny Tufts. Robert Strauss. This is what they call classical music, isn't it? Yes. I could tell because there's no vocal. Shh. Don't talk. Let it sweep over you. Relax. Go limp. Like this? I've been married for seven years. And I'm afraid I'm coming down with what you and Dr. Steichel call the seven-year itch. (laughs) What am I going to do? 1955, the seven-year itch. When his family goes away for the summer, a hitherto faithful husband 
with an overactive imagination is tempted by a beautiful neighbor. Uh, It should be said that in this IMDb synopsis, neighbor is spelled with two Bs. (laughs) Is that... Is that like a breast joke, or we think that that's just accidental? Neighbor. Right. And of course, the neighbor is Marilyn Monroe, the most famous woman who's ever lived. Um, famous, So famous at this time, if you, if you ever wanted to know, like, oh, 1955 is a long time ago, I know she's a celebrity, like, what was the actual, like, breaking point of her celebrity uh, at the in the last 10 minutes of this movie when uh, the guy who's been upstate with Richard's wife comes back in? He's, does he say you might as well have Marilyn Monroe in there? Or maybe Richard says that to him, but one of them it's makes a It's a real reference. Ocean's 12, yeah. like Julia Roberts <laughs> moment. And I didn't have a ton of patience for that. Um, but it's so bizarre to think that like she's only in her 20s here. I mean, she's dead by 36, yeah. which is only like five years from where she is here. Mm-hmm. Or no, it's more than that, seven years. Um, but yeah, it's... It's very strange to see, I mean, this kind of this kind of film because it exists in like um, like an Americana canon of like much like James Dean. Like, there's only a finite amount of material that exists that shows why people are so obsessed with this thing that the monoculture is obsessed with, and only um, a finite number of chilies that have a framed picture of her dress coming up from the subway grate, which is the iconic shot from this movie. Yeah, I mean, if that's if there's no other takeaway here, it's the the much copied and whatever. Yeah, the the skirt going up because of the subway, the uh, Madame Tussauds of it all. Incredible, yeah. The aforementioned subway and the heat that rises there off. Why don't we just start with that? I don't. I've spent I spent one summer in New York. I visited you in the summer in New York a couple of times. I don't really recall subway wind coming up through the streets is that still a thing or am i just not remembering no it's definitely a thing do people stand on it or is it the grossest thing in the world if it blows up on you i mean it's kind of scary to stand over those grates where you can tell that you know there's not a ton separating for you in the train tracks um but i i think it's it's somewhat of a hollywood wink i mean only the first shot and the last shot of this movie are actually in New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rest of it's very much on a soundstage. Uh, but yeah, it's it, it's in that space too, where like there's probably a leaf blower that like did some lifting in that. I don't think it would like lift a woman's skirt. Have you done this? I've tried. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm. That's what I'm alluding to. And, and it, it like was disappointingly maybe like there was a flutter in my skirt, but there wasn't like a full lift. Yeah, the much more relatable thing is where she, but where Marilyn Monroe wanders over to the to the air conditioning in Richard Sherman's apartment and just kind of does the wind pants next to it. I think we've all experienced that in the last couple of weeks if we were lucky enough to have a fan or AC of some kind. Right. You know what's more New York accurate is how often I slip on beads that have come off of necklaces when people are like chasing each other and then they like break it off like in Home Alone 2. Is that true? Are you joking? That is that is an epidemic in the the touristy parts of town. You're just constantly banana slipping on your butt. No, I'm of course joking. Um so this is a a movie that originated as a 1952 play by George Axelrod and Tom Yule, um, who plays Richard Sherman, the uh, 
the husband with the wandering eye and wandering imagination is uh, is playing the role that he played on Broadway. He was more of a stage actor. He preferred it. Um, and I believe this is his best known uh, cinematic work. Um, how, I rolled you... my eyes a little when he's like, I'm 38. I was like, okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> a gentleman's 38, perhaps. You should have stopped smoking 12 years ago if you want me to believe that. Yeah, your doctor should have told you much earlier that smoking was not the way to go. Exactly. How um, many Tom Collins is he going to put away? Right. Um, you ever had a Tom Collins? I actually can't say I have. You? No, I was looking up the recipe while I was watching it. I was like, that sounds pretty refreshing. Sure. If I drank more, maybe I'd have a Tom Collins. The The alcohol mixing in this movie is pretty funny. There's... I think there is a moment before they decide to go in on a whole bottle of champagne where Marilyn Monroe says, I'll have a glass of that, a big tall one. And he makes her, <laughs> he makes her like a pint glass of gin and vermouth, both of which I think uh, checks notes are alcohol. That's like yep. nine drinks. Well, it's just a big martini. Right. Uh, six it's martinis a pint glass in full one of glass. Malt- yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's like, oh, I just want to, maybe I should add some sugar. He's like, if I can tell you nothing in this life, it's don't ever add sugar to a martini. Mm. Um, that's the last So let's step. talk about the premise of this movie. Because I feel like, so Billy Wilder, of course, The Apartment. Yeah. Some Like It Hot. Double Indemnity. Yeah. Inc- Sunset Boulevard, Ace in the Hole. Inc- oh, yeah, I mean. One of, one of the great American directors. And one of the, the sort of, at the forefront of the romantic comedy and even the kind of comedy that we'll see in Weekend at Bernie's, I would say. Um, you can kind of see it in this movie. Like, this movie is playing with, um, like, sketch yes. uh, way more than you would think it would. Absolutely. That being said, I have to say from the jump, as, like, winky as some of his other movies are, this is maybe one of the more dated conceits that's very much like it's having fun with the mad men of it all but it's like not maybe as aware of the inherent problems that like the peggy olsons of the world faced uh so much so that like marilyn monroe doesn't even have a character name she's referred Mm. to as uh the girl you don't think that was a family name I don't. I don't think the girl oh, all right. um, was a family name. So, like, and off the bat, trigger warning, the first scene of the movie, the cold open of the movie, is 50 white actors who have been, whose skin has been darkened to resemble Native Americans, who then, the, the joke is that, you know, since the dawn of populations existing on Manhattan Island, you know, women have like wives have gone up to Maine for the summer, to the Hamptons for the summer, and men have stayed around to hunt and gather or hunt and and what was it? And to work and to trap. To trap. And to fish. And to fish. Yeah. There's very little fishing that happens in this movie. Um but yeah, and so this very uh, dated, sort of uh, unforgivable sequence happens that I don't think it isn't saved by the premise. You know, it's kind of like <laughs> one on the other. 
And that's the first five minutes of the movie. And then, of course, it's like the establishing shot of 1955 New York, which is like beautiful and charming. And, you know, everyone's wearing these great suits and like everything's really prim and proper and everybody's got a secretary. And yeah, this this guy, you know, you sort of it sort of has a an interesting American beautiness to it. Uh, we, mm-hmm. I was talking about this movie with the with a podcast favorite Brent Rivers the other day, and I, I mean I would be too afraid to watch American Beauty. Like I may never watch it again. Um, but the idea of you have this like here's typical Manhattan guy who's like getting home from work one day at the publisher he works for, uh, and it's like the Lester Burnham monologue in his head, except he's saying it out loud. Tom Ewell is saying it out loud, uh, which Mm. is kind of hokey, but it's like that thing where he like invents things that are like spectacular, you know, and it's, it, it has that sort of like white guy who's feeling sad and stuckness to it, which, you know, in the lens of like a 1955 humorist, my God. I think if there is any sort of even-handedness or a saving of this premise, it's just that uh, Tom Ewell plays Richard as very non-threatening, which I think if he had even an ounce more of intimidation to him would be a million times worse. And I do like Evelyn Keyes as Helen, his, his wife who's gone uh, up to New England with their son, as she kind of like reappears in these various sketches of being like, oh yeah, Richard, what an imagination on you. Nately, uh, recently, it's been in uh, Cinemascope and Stereophonic Sound, which is a nice wink. And then she comes back and shoots him a couple times. Um, but yeah, I don't know what I think of that performance as a whole it's um the Tom Ewell one or the yeah sometimes it's cute sometimes it's a little annoying um oh I think I, he's an incredible physical performer and I think if there are saving true. graces of this movie it's the physical performances and the chemistry between Marilyn Monroe and Tom Ewell which is like I think pretty good but yeah but I don't know it's like really from the jump that the just the setup of like Men, after seven years, they give up on their their marital loyalty and their fidelity. And man, it's hot outside. <laughs> and therefore, it is so. Yeah. But it definitely does. But I, I will say that the movie knows that this guy's like a schmuck. And totally. it, it doesn't romanticize him bumbling at all, you know, and it's it's interesting to see like what this movie says in kind of a, you know, a Winkies 1950 way, both about like urban living, but also about because I think the, the, the movie is smart to introduce the fact that like the guy works at a publishing company and he's like working on a book about men exactly like him whose psyches are breaking down, uh, especially right. in the, the summer heat. Uh, so I, I think the movie is smart in that way. Um, but yeah, it's like battle of the sexes humor is, is quite, is quite tough. Is it battle of the sexes though? Or is it like it's someone, pl- it's like someone it. playing racquetball alone. I mean, and that's it really so is. Yeah. Curious. Like different, different faces of different women, like come up on the, on the wall that you're hitting the ball against, but it's, you're not playing anyone. Well, yeah, sometimes he imagines there's another woman playing racquetball with him and beating him very badly. (laughs) That's, I think the, you you hit the nail on the head there because the idea that he never really like spars with 
any woman beyond the ones that he's concocted in his own mind. Right. It's like th- women don't have the wherewithal to surprise him. And what happens is that Marilyn Monroe just turns out to be like exceptionally chill. Uh, right. Even though like he like makes at least two fumbling passes at her. Yeah. What do we think of Marilyn Monroe in this movie? Oh, she's incredible. I love that she has the ability to like, as a, if it was in the the stage direction or if something she just made up in the moment, but the idea of like, hey, have you ever tried a, a potato chip in, in some champagne? It's, it's nice. crazy. <laughs> like just being able to deliver like a line like that is so good. I think she needs like 20 more of those moments, to be honest. I mean, I, I kept... I kept trying to find ways, you know, reaching, reaching, reaching for like, in what ways is this subversive? In what ways is this, does she have control over the sort of sex kitten bombshell persona? Which is like, people have written scholarship about that forever. Um, um, Wondering, you know, how much authorship did she had? How much was she shoved into a box? That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, It's... And I think she's really, really good at what the movie will let her do. Like, when she just sort of mugs, pops out from behind that chair, it's amazing. Like, she's figured out that, like, one of the things they will let me do is try to shatter the camera lens with my face appearing. (laughs) And she's great at it. You know what I feel like is the... Well, you can tell me if if this is true or I'm misreading some textual element of this, though. Doesn't it seem like she is more interesting and acting better in the sketches. Like it's more fun to see her play the sort of French Russian woman who's overacting when he plays Rachmaninoff. And then it comes back to real life and she's actually more airheaded. Now you could say that, you know, the whole thing is basically like a projection of Tom Mule or someone like, or Richard or someone like Richard's uh, visions of women, and that's half the point chance. But I don't know, that felt kind of damning to me. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm hinting at, is they're like, they are making fun of his like outdated and outmoded ways of thinking about women, but they don't really like present women in that flattering of a way outside of his imagination, which I think is what I got tripped up on. It's kind of like um, uh, the Zoe Kazan movie, Ruby Sparks, except if she wasn't a figment of his imagination. She's real. Yeah. She's real. And she's far more interesting. Um, I will give on the entertainment value side of this movie. I will speak to the fact that Tom Ewell smokes incredibly well. Hmm. Like the cigarette as like a physical object that he's like constantly close to setting things on fire with or burning himself with, but doesn't. And then the way he like makes the smoke kind of emphasize like when he's, I don't know, upset about things, how he's thinking about stuff and like getting the cigarettes too, I think is such a great bit. Uh, like finding the key and then when they're out, it's it's got a sitcominess to it, you know, where it's a lot of physical gags all in, you know, like act one is basically all in the like the living room of this house. 
and the way he kind of navigates the you know the stairway to nowhere and the the different rooms and he's like oh he, now he needs to get the ice he's like always in the back of his mind getting you know trying to be a good host and sort of the narrative tethers him to that so seeing him be like oh I can't do this like my wife is gonna be so pissed you know what we need ice and then he'll like run off to do that which is so he has to return some videotapes he has to return some videotapes this guy but like the way you bring that up, but I, I think he's like a bit of a psycho. Sure. Um, yeah, and the fact that he's reading books about psychotherapy doesn't make him any less of a psycho. No, that his pathology has been recorded doesn't mean he's not <laughs> insane. Um, am I a grump for wishing like a little more had happened? This is not like a common criticism of mine, but like, you know, he and Marilyn are in a scene just talking to each other for 25 uninterrupted minutes and they don't talk about anything. Yes, you do kind of want more to happen, especially for a movie that's, what, almost two hours long? But I guess that goes back Hour to the, 45? like, they're not, they're not playing tennis thing. And that's so weird. It's like, they don't really... That's the thing. I think it's a better movie if Marilyn is more sort of, like, surprisingly with it. Like, even if it's not just, like, wordplay intelligence, but it's, like, her kind of spider web a little bit more. That's... Or just has more of anything of her own going on. Like, I really relished the moment where she actually... It's supposed to be a joke about how she's, like, you know, distractible and, and in her own world. But where she's talking about, like, what if I return the first fan to the drugstore for $3 off and buy a bigger fan? And I'm like, I think this joke is at her expense, but, like, I want to know what's going on in her mind. <laughs> Right, and she probably should get a bigger fan. It seems oh, definitely. very hot. And, you know, the people upstairs spend all this money on African art, but they don't spend any of it on air conditioners. I want to ask about... Uh, uh, That's Krahul- a line from the movie. I thought that wasn't my own judgment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to ask about Krahulik, the janitor, played by Robert Strauss. And I want uh, to ask... The racially you, ambiguous... Uh, a Mediterranean janitor. Um yes. He, have you ever encountered anyone who is sort of like a self-fashioned just fan of infidelity? Like he comes across a situation of suggested infidelity and he's just like, yes, well done. This is, this is quite, the, quite the rule breaking you have here. He's an odd well, character. I hadn't, yeah, no, I hadn't met anybody that way until the next act where you meet Donald McBride's Mr. Brady, who's like, you trying to go out there and fuck tonight? Like, if this movie had been 20 or 30 years later, like, that dude would have been, I don't know, some goofy actor that Apatow put in a movie where he's like, you trying to go out and fuck? Like, you trying to fuck? <laughs> Instead, he's like, you and I could uh, traverse the town and inspire a hootenanny. Yeah, they would inspire quite the hootenanny. Of course, Yule's not up for a hootenanny tonight. Um, but it is interesting how the... Like the the morality of the characters kind of has like the bumpers of those two guys where it's like, well, at least Richard isn't this bad. Like right. at least he has doubts. Yeah. You know? Don't <laughs> he's not fully he's not fully on board with the, the animals that are out there in the world. Yeah. He's not wearing like a foam finger to cheer on his id. That's it. That's there it. There's go. there's some self awareness there. Um you know who I did like is, who? Uh, was it Tom McKenzie? Yeah, Sonny Tufts, who's this guy who every time, 
Richard calls his wife. He's, you know, and he's constantly like thinking about going on a moral holiday. And she, he's always like, what? Tom McKenzie's there. You're going on a hay rack ride. <laughs> and this is like some author that he uh, either he has worked with or he sort of knows incidentally. But then like Tom McKenzie at the end of the movie charges into his house. Just the biggest chest I've ever seen on a man in like a bumblebee waistcoat. Um, yes. and Richard confronts He's him. He's got That's that a good Kurt scene. Douglas triangle body thing going on, but, but, but like proportionalized to like 240 pounds. Um, yeah, no, he's yeah. a big dude. That's an enjoyable. And that's funny too. Like that in, in the last act there, like the script does have fun with that dude literally only being there for the canoe paddle. Right. Uh, or the kayak paddle. And yeah. And Richard's just like on his knees, giving the game away. This was kind of a confusing one. It has the trappings of good stuff, you yeah. know, like it's fun to see the script be really playful and you can tell it's based on like a well done play. You know, you kind of have the, oh, the other one I liked is the Chekhov's roller skate or like, Definitely. of course you can't find the second roller skate and that's going to come into play. Yeah, um, it calls it out. I liked the wittiness of, and maybe this is just homophobia, but the wittiness of, yeah. oh, there's, there's two guys who live upstairs. I think they're both interior decorators or something, and then totally move on. Yeah, I think one thing that should be said is that uh, the legacy of this movie is how much Billy Wilder was fighting the Hayes Code. So like little things like that that seem euphemistic and slightly undercooked or asides or like, I think oh, it's a way think of getting great. around these things. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, well, the other thing too is like even the, the first time that uh, Marilyn and Richard kiss, they're like almost like consumer-sponsored sh- kisses. Like, because they kind of do the gag of like, no, the toothpaste really is this good and I'll show you. And that also feels like ever so slightly like, fuck you, Hayes Code. Because... Billy Wilder in later years was like in the play, they sleep together, which makes this gives it an entirely different, oh more volatile God. dimension of reality, which I do think would have been a more interesting movie. I would be fast. I have the movie I watched today. I have zero idea how it would have handled that turn. And Billy Wilder in later years was just like, I wish I, he literally said, I wish I hadn't made it because we couldn't do the actual source material. Um, interesting. Let me ask you this. Yeah. True or false, Tom mm-hmm. Ewell is if you put Simon Pegg into Frank Whaley. That's good. Well done. Thanks. True. I give it, it a true, took me a couple true. minutes to... <laughs> is that where your mind I... was drifting off to when I was talking about Tom McKenzie? Um, why yes. don't we tell people how we rate movies on this show and then rate the seven-year inch? On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories, a good or bad for technical quality and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good, bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Todd, asshole. 
bad, bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered unfortunately include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, Master. Got all that? Time for a rating. I think that this is pretty quintessential good-bad. I think it's a little long in the tooth um, in both its politics and its its ways of comedy. But I see the importance of it as a historical document and how it definitely influenced definitely, I mean, television sitcoms and then, of course, like the rom-coms that we see made today, uh, including one that we'll talk about in a couple of seconds here. Um, but yeah. I think it's and for that reason it's but but because of being dated it's it's hard to it's hard to sit through. Yeah. Uh I'm totally in agreement. I think I mean you already made one Mad Men reference. I I'm every time I look at Billy Wilder's filmography I'm struck by like this guy this guy invented Mad Men essentially between this and The Apartment and Double Indemnity. Um Right. Like he Every so many of the things that like different characters. You remember when Trudy leaves and Pete's at home for the weekend? But there, it's there's Mad Men like later doubles back on the like the darkness that you think would right. be in a movie like this, where Pete sexually assaults the helpless au pair upstairs, um, and right, that right. feels more. And Billy Wilder himself, like in a movie like Double Indemnity or you know Jack Lemmon's darker moments in the apartment. Um, and Shirley MacLaine is sort of, you know, has some, a little Peggy Olsen in her in that movie. I think he's done more to be more incisive. And this one is just sort of light in a way that just doesn't make sense much anymore. So I'm going to go good, bad as well. Yes. Yeah, I don't mean to indict the career of Billy Wilder here. I think he has much better and more lasting films. Oh, like this 10 one, of them. Exactly. So it's it doesn't feel that icky to be like, hey, the seven-year-ish, uh, well, a time capsule... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> is not that good of a movie. Okay. From Manhattan to Brooklyn. 1989's Do the Right Thing. On the hottest day of the year on a street in the Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn, everyone's hate and bigotry smolders and builds until it explodes into violence. I would be a little bit more specific if I were to write the synopsis for this one, uh-huh. potentially mentioning the pizza place, which is kind of the the sure. fulcrum of the plot, if you will. Right. So there's, it's all kind of the, so we have this particular block and it, it it's the story of the people in your neighborhood, but then it kind of looks at the smoldering uh, resentment that exists between the historically black residents and the two outside groups, mostly the Sal's pizza place and then the Korean grocery store. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a little wordy though. So I I'm, I'm sympathetic to the, the scribe of this synopsis. Did you spell everything right in your hypothetical synopsis though? Neighborhood with three B's. <laughs> <Two Bs. laughs> um, Boy, there's so much to say about Do the Right Thing. I, I don't think I'm overstating anything by saying it's probably one of the best American films ever made. I mean, it's it's uh, for me, it's Spike Lee's best movie. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, it's a. Well, it's a co- no. It's, it's it's one of the best ones. Sure. 
It's inarguable. I would say this one has more staying power, perhaps, than some of the other ones I really like. You are like uh, a big she hate me guy, right? Get out of here. <laughs> I'm I'm a 25th hour guy. Um, sure. And I think several of those collaborations with Denzel are pretty good. Mm-hmm. I think Mo Better Blues is kind of an unappreciated yeah. 6.0 on IMDb is a crime. I think Mo Better Blues is much better than that. Um, anyway, but any there's so many different ways to talk about do the right thing. I I think one of the I I feel like I've watched this like once a year for the last six years somehow. I really love this movie, and one of the worlds that you get to live in in do the right thing. And we'll talk all about the ending, of course. You have to, um, but for a movie that you know ends with an incredible tragedy. Uh, it is an incredibly enjoyable movie to live in for a good chunk of like 90 minutes. So it's almost like the sort of powder keg element is ever present and must be analyzed. But it's also like you don't spend the whole movie being like, this is smoldering because otherwise you wouldn't watch it over and over again. It's going to be a scorcher to be. Universal Pictures presents a new film from Spike Lee. Good morning, Miss Mother's sister. Now, Mookie, don't work too hard today. The man says it's going to be hot as the devil. I've been here 25 years. LaSalle's famous pizzeria is here to stay. Trust me. Mookie, the last time I trusted you, we ended up with a son. I know you can't stand it. You can't stand it. Hey, hey, Sal, I'm going to burn up on the wall here. You want brothers on the wall? Love. Get your own place. You can do what you want to do. What I tell you about that noise? What I tell you about them pictures? You folks and brother talk to him. You the man. No, you the man. No, you the man. No, you the man. The first time you turn your back, boom. Ah! Right here, man, in the back. Y'all take a chill. You'd like to sign a petition to boycott South's famous pizzeria? Hear me, what you ought to do is boycott that no good barber that messed up your head. And that's the double truth. Yeah, you maybe don't say this is smoldering, but I think what Spike Lee's really good at, especially in this world, is that he makes a strong choice for all of his characters, and they all have, anytime you're with them or see them pass by in the fore or background, you know what they're doing. They, Mm -hmm. like, have a desire. You know, Mookie's just, like, trying to get paid he's trying to like do the amount of work that he's being paid for uh but otherwise like this isn't his life he's not a pizza delivery guy he's the guy who's delivering pizza Mm -hmm. but is also doing the thing that he needs to do to make rent and trying to keep the peace at the same time um you know you got bugging out john carlo esposito who's incredible in this uh he just wants a face that looks like his on this wall of fame of this Italian restaurant that doesn't serve Italian people. You know, why wouldn't the fame be more, he's kind of arguing for, and this is such a reductive way to put it, but you know, like in Applebee's, they like dedicate one wall to like the local high school. Like he's really just searching for the community building that, you know, seems to have already come naturally to larger food corporations. So Sal's really should have gotten on board. Applebee's beat Sal's to the punch on that one. That's a that's quite that's, an indictment. That's it. Yeah. Um, do you do you want to run through more people? Um, 
Oh, and of course, like, I think one of the more fascinating dynamics is between the two brothers, Vito and Pino, mm-hmm. uh, Richard Edson and then John Turturro, respectively, where you've got these, like, two hopped up, hot, both, I would say, like, in attractiveness and in temperature, young guys who just, like, need to blow off some steam. And the only people that they feel comfortable being intimate with are each other. And that turn has turned into, like, this toxic, like, no, fuck you. No, fuck you. No, like, fuck you. Like, hey, dad asked me to do this. Like, go do this kind of relationship, which I think is really, you know – as this movie ages and like looking at it, like through the context of, you know, the larger cultural reckoning that happened in this time last summer, uh, this one feels so present. Like it feels so of now too, you know, especially when it's looking at just the anger that it feels like these sort of masculine white people have where it's like, Mm -hmm. this is mine. Like you're trying to take what's mine. And it's like, you're not listening to what people are saying to you. Mm -hmm. Like do the thing that people are asking you to do, do the right thing. And it becomes a a story about anger and property that is like the, that's really the fulcrum of the, of the plot. Yeah. Taturo is so loathsome as Pino. I, I pretty much forget it's him. It's such a great performance. It doesn't, I don't really recognize him as John Taturo from other things I like him in. I just think of Totoro as like a kind of a hunched over guy scratching at his feet, you know, from the night of. You're all, you're all about that eczema representation. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. One of the things, what you're talking about is just incredible, like, stage management by Spike. Well, I mean, yes. watching this movie, it's amazing when you just sort of see Ossie Davis's Demare shambling through the background of another scene or um, the same group of friends with Martin Lawrence uh, just going down that block over there. Or I never noticed from inside Sal's, you can very clearly see the Korean grocery. You can very clearly see uh, Paul Benjamin and Frankie Faison and uh, who plays Sweet Dick Willie, Robin Harris. You can see them on the red wall across the way. Like they're... One of the things that's so amazing about this movie is it has this like lived in authentic quality to it, but at no point would you really call it realist. Like it feels like every Spike Lee movie, it feels larger than life. It feels extremely theatrical. If you, anytime you're like that character is the Greek chorus, you're like, well, buddy, four of these characters are the Greek chorus. (laughs) Yeah. That's almost too easy of a, like a structural read on it. I know. Um, yeah. Well, I think it's interesting, too, that the opening title sequence is supposed to be an homage to Bye Bye Birdie. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like in that key, like you almost expect people to break out into song at some point because of the stagey kind of, it does feel similar. Maybe this is why it's uh, a heat movie, uh, urban heat, but it does feel similarly stagey, I would say, to the seven year itch. You know, where you kind of know that you're never leaving the block here. Right. And when you're in the pizza place, like, the camera's not going to, like, go up through the chimney of the pizza oven, like, into some David Fincher worlds. Like, you're in this, in this set. And one of the things I really love about it is uh, the lighting in this movie is incredible. I just watched a movie, and I don't want to, like, come for it too uh, harshly. 
but it was kind of like these all-in-one-day youth-in-a-city movies set in L.A., and one of the things that kind of gave it away was, like, it was the golden hour from, like, 11 to 8. And, <laughs> and sure. that, when you're watching a one-day movie, it's like, that is a little suspicious. You just wanted every scene to look great. And uh, one of the things about this movie is you can tell that uh, the front window of Sal's faces east. It is morning light. You can always tell what kind of day, time of day it is until you like enter someone's apartment and it's just like, you know, a little box of hell that sort of sort of like infernal kind of lighting um, where it's just like we have to go outside just to remember that like we're human. Yeah, the apartments kind of feel like labyrinth worlds where like it's you can shut 17 doors, but you're like somehow still in the same room with your mother that's screaming at you and like the baby that's crying. And you're like, yeah, it's he's very Lee is very good at like navigating the claustrophobia of being indoors when it's very hot. Uh, That's very that's smart. I found myself this time really appreciating Bill Nunn as Radio Rahim. Um I mean, it's really easy gotta to get talk on board. about Radio Rahim. You gotta. It's really easy to appreciate like the iconography of Radio Rahim, the the classic D motherfucker D's twenty D batteries, <laughs> and uh, you know it's always a testament to fight the power being just such a good fucking song, and it can play twelve times in this movie. I never get sick of it. Um, but and he finds Lee finds good moments to play like specific lyrical exchanges. I would say too. Like I yeah. think it's really important that it hits the the verse where the line is like Elvis means a lot to some people but I just saw him as like someone who was racist who stole black people's sound motherfuck him and John Wayne yes exactly but like having that juxtaposed with you know the the mostly Italian or the entirely Italian wall of fame where it's Al Pacino and Robert De Niro who parenthetically turned down the role to play the Danny Aiello Sal part, uh, but it's all these like famous people, Joe D, uh, old Blue Eyes. Yeah, you're right. He does. He's 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 choosy about it, um, which is great. But Bill Nunn also there are like all these little moments where you just kind of. It's not just that one ice cold stare. Like I love when Frank Vincent gets his uh, car soaked by the hydrant, like right before he pulls up in the vintage car, Radio Rahim comes past. And like the look that he gives Martin Lawrence and company, that's like, guys, like don't even make me give you this look. I am going to walk down here. And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. It's a, that's a great moment of nothing acting. And Sarah pointed out that like, you know, Bill Nunn has kind of a baby face. And I think that um, if you made that character um, scarier or more menacing and less human, you would really ruin um, the final resonance and also just like what he means to everyone in the neighborhood. He is as much a person to everyone in the neighborhood as Mookie is. Yes. Well, that's the thing too. He's such a presence in the film because like, Fight the power is so prevalent. Like, you know that, I mean, it helps the performance, of course, like, because you know when you hear that song that Bill Nunn is not far away. Right. Yeah. And I think that's so interesting, too, that, you know, when you kind of boil that character down and you kind of ask, like, when he is, like, where is he going? You know, like, where is he going with the, with this, this huge boombox? And he's not going anywhere. He's just kind of doing laps with everybody else. 
because he can. You know, and there, there's something just so fascinating about the char- giving that character so much agency, but also, like, that being the thing that the other characters are, like, afraid of or push back on. Like, your music's too loud. Like, don't bring that in here. That's, like, how Spike Lee chooses to represent that, like, whatever that annoyance, that, like, not on my lawn kind of thing about it. This really embodying it in this, in this stereo, in this song. Uh, it's a... It's a good choice. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason you I, you know this is like top tier Spike is without the surreal interludes, it would still be a great movie. But then you have like the love and hate monologue with the brass knuckles. And then you have the thing that he recycles in 25th Hour with everybody doing the, the racial diatribes direct to camera. And you have the can't stand it and everyone's like taking a shower and starting the hydrant and god and the details like uh scratching the 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 edges off the can lids on the sidewalk every time he chooses to go to a higher plane it ends up being an iconic sequence too and it's just like geez i mean like he just everything was rolling in this movie let me ask you this chance and this may be controversial but does this movie not have the Spike Lee shot? It's, um, <laughs> no, for those who don't know, it's teasing me because I failed to identify the dolly shot into Five Bloods, even though in retrospect it was very obvious. Um, it's really fast. It's just um, Sam Jackson in the swivel chair coming toward the radio desk, being like, everybody cool it or hold it. It's like split oh, second. Interesting. Split second. But it's not like Denzel running with no arms moving, but the whole world's like, no, behind her. <laughs> got it. And that's the one that was so obvious. I think it fooled me for all time. It was like, will it? They all look like this. Um, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Uh, Sam Jackson, though, is so great in this movie, and what a great presence. He is great and a great presence, and like I think that character does such fascinating work too to kind of like show you know, like the tenor of what's happening hour to hour, mm-hmm. you know, like when he's playful, it seems like the world is playful. And when he's hungry, it seems like everybody's running to the pizza shop. Great point. You know, he's kind of, it's unclear like who's dictating what, like is life imitating art or is his, what he's saying imitating or influencing what what's happening with the people outside. Uh, and I thought that was, that layer of it is sort of uh, uh, interesting. Totally. Um, one of the things I think we have to talk about with heat wave movies is I think that this one, and Jesus, my job is nowhere near as hard as, uh, delivering pizzas up six flights of stairs, but, um, how fucking hard is it to work when it's this hot and keep your mind on your work? Like when it was 114 degrees outside and it was 97 in our apartment, I mean, the first night, a weekend kind of felt like summer camp. It's like, let's just crowd in the air mattress with the fan and watch movies. And that was okay. But the next day where it's like, I, I got to go in the other room and edit and teach. It's 97 degrees in here. Like, and that's where you like the stomach sickness starts to creep in and everybody's, you know, giving shit. Um, I mean, definitely with the like, racist undertones of like Mookie's sort of effort level um, at different points on behalf of the pizza shop. But I also just kind of felt like that's an accurate representation of a day that hot where like, if you get four things done, like... That's the whole day because time and physicality have like warped completely. 
Chance, I've said it before. I'll say it again. Uh, fuck the cops. Yeah. Not um, great in this movie. No. This movie kind of baits you to, or it bait, baited me at least, in the, the fir- when they show up, when they first pop the hydrant, there is a sense of which, like, they are a, not, if not part of the community, like, present in the community. Like, this is the beat of these two officers. And, like, they don't really give a shit about Frank Vincent's car. And there's this sort of, like, uh, do you care to give a description, sir, kind of thing. Um, and their familiarity with the place um, means fucking nothing in terms of them murdering the people that they're charged to protect. Yes. Well, it shows the limitations, again, of these, like, sweaty, angry, hot, tired, hungry guys who, like, really only have reports and violence to throw at things. And, you know, they can come in and turn the hydrant off and they can take a statement about your car. But, like, what do you want me to do about it? You want me to chase down a couple of guys who got you wet? Like, that, I think, is Spike Lee's... his subversion here is like, he kind of makes the cops seem almost human and just like Mookie, like doing a job on a hot day. But then like, as they get more introduced and you see like the, where they can go and like how the system will play out when they feel like control is actually lost. Like it's not just threats and, you know, bureaucracy, it's actual violence, which you know, I think this is one of the early times of us really seeing images like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something kind of tough about reappraising this movie, Noah. Um, considering it essentially does the it does the say their names, remember their names thing for Eleanor Bumpers and and Black Brooklynites murdered by the police 35 years ago. And so yep. there's there's something about like coming back to it the way that you and I tend to do to movies and be like, it's so prescient or it does this thing that I think is relevant now. And it's like even making that point is like a little sick because of how long it's lasted and how long it's taken and how and how little, you know, the motherfucker your window Radio Rahim is dead is like a debate that plays out to this very second and there's almost nothing to me that's like intellectually poignant about pointing that out um i was thinking a lot about um there's this comedian i really like named uh io debery she's on a bunch of podcasts i think she has she does the she took over for jenny slate on big mouth um but she did this review of spike of uh do the right thing on letterbox last summer um at the height of the protests after Breonna taylor and george floyd which was just like we make these movies, her meaning coming from black artists. Um, and you, you all white people can make a letterboxed review of it. You can say that it's very prescient. You can say that it's very poignant. You can say, you know, thanks for the empathy machine. Thanks for the window into this world. And it just doesn't stop. And that's kind of, it's not an indictment of this movie. It's just sort of like an indictment of the world and how this just keeps fucking going. And if you'll allow me one more thing, this is why I think the thing that is good about this movie, what I would have considered to be the sort of grading Spike Lee excess of the morning after and the insurance money and the Martin and the Malcolm quote at the end you know, I think when I first saw it, I would have been like, you got to end it with Smiley pinning the thing on the wall and it's rage and it's fight the power. And now I think like it's, it's not, it's not solutions necessarily. It's like 
the difficulty and the necessity. And again, Sam Jackson is the one who's just like, tomorrow is tomorrow. Today's forecast, hot. And the system's going to come here and do what they will do. And that's kind of like what the Mookie character embodies is like, tomorrow is coming. And as much as it's an instinct of people to hate each other and kill each other, it's also an instinct of people to stay alive until tomorrow. And to me, like that's kind of the resonant or uh, the part that that's what resonated with me this time is that in a sick way, you know, the beat goes on and that's human too. I think the aforementioned uh, sort of larger cultural scope of this movie does make the, you know, the, the needle go a little bit good, bad, but I think it's definitely a good, good. It's, there's so many enjoyable parts of it. Yes. I almost think that, that, yes, like, well, now I feel bad about the thing I said, my assessment of the film, but um, I do think what's good about this movie is that it is a good movie, even without the climactic, uh, you know, and the timeliness of the climactic part of it. Totally. It is about the worlds and this particular incident is, I mean, it's climactic for the characters involved and it is the necessary scream of all these people not getting what they want simultaneously. Uh, but yeah, there's, it's, it's a good movie beyond that. Absolutely. Even as I was watching it last night and hearing my own voice in my head, I'm like, I'm already sick of hearing myself, my own voice talk about <laughs> the politics of this movie. It's like, you know what? It's going to be okay because every frame of this movie uh, is great in some way. Um, so it's, yeah, it's not something where like the political read supersedes like how fucking awesome it is. Uh, good, good. Same year, 1989. Uh, it was the year of hot summers. Such a kinship um, between these films. Weekend at Bernie's. Two losers try to <laughs> pretend that their murdered employer is really alive. Leading the hitman, what hitman, to attempt to track him down to finish him off. This terrible, terrible, uh, just just end it with alive, but don't get into the hitman, because then you got to explain that the hitman killed him before they got there. True. Ugh. No, this is one of my favorite kind of movies for us to do, which is a movie that, like, everyone knows the premise, because they're like, oh, yeah, that's like Weekend at Bernie's, but haven't had never had never seen it and have not had like many like this is what is going on in weekend at bernie's beyond dragging a dead guy around i didn't even know if he was really dead if he'd been murdered there was so much about the movie i didn't know i have to like rewind a little bit and ask like are there a lot of things in culture where you're like oh yeah that's like weekend at bernie's (laughs) yeah like other than that daniel radcliffe movie Swiss Army uh, Man. Swiss Army Man. Um, are there a lot of things in culture? I don't know. There's <laughs> like, like a it... weekend at Bernie's reference in the office. I feel like when people are like sure. joking about like moving their bodies around in weird ways, someone would be like, oh, it's a little bit like weekend it at Bernie's. It does seem like in pop culture, uh, at least from my vantage, that when, yeah, even though I had not seen this movie until now and people said, oh, it's like weekend at Bernie's in that rare instance, I would understand what they meant. Yeah. But if someone was like, it's like Andrew McCarthy's character in weekend at Bernie's, he would be like, 
What? There are characters yeah. in it? Don't you see? Don't you see? We just uncovered a $2 million error. We're going to be heroes. We're going up the corporate ladder. It appears as if somebody's trying to defraud the company. Somebody tried to smoke it past the wrong guy. Very, very good work. How would you two like to come to my house at the beach? Love to! Oh. For Larry and Richard. How are you? This is a place to die for. You have to kill them, Vito. I'm a little rusty, but it'll come back to me. What, should, should we just walk in? But what they don't realize... No, we'll stand out here all weekend. Come on, we're housekeeping. ...is while they're checking in... Forget the accident with the two guys. Take care of Lomax. Bernie Lomax will be checking out. Oh, my God! What kind of a host invites you to his house for the weekend and dies on you? I don't know. It's a pretty flimsy movie, as every critic of it has pointed out, uh, in that there's not a ton beyond beating the summer heat that <laughs> these two recent college grads are trying to get into, mm-hmm. uh, other than like go to their seemingly rich and successful boss's uh, fictional island beach house. It's compound. Looks like fucking... Pablo Escobar's Museum of Art. It does. And it's got this like weird roof, but it's like not really a roof. It's like a Miami Vice beach house with this like weird Yeah. like with a, I don't even know how to describe it. A dash of air and space museum. It's like a a sukkah above it. <laughs> no so one stop describing what the house looks like. Our two our two losers are Larry Wilson and uh, Richard Parker, the tiger from Life of Pi. They are played by Andrew McCarthy. What? Wait, I'm sorry. How is the character from this movie affiliated with Life of Pi? Richard Parker is the tiger's name in Life of Pi. Oh, I didn't remember that. Andrew McCarthy. Andrew McCarthy, Jonathan Silverman. Yeah. Um, what a duo. A real chance in Noah. God. Which You're please Andrew don't. McCarthy. Okay, great, wonderful. Um, we could start right at the front here. Like this is as a comedic duo, I think they've miscalculated just a little bit. However much you can miscalculate when there's only two figures in the equation, but Larry, the Andrew McCarthy character, he's sort of like the instigator, the wild man. Um, and Richard Parker, played by Jonathan Silverman, is the more like, you know, Owen Wilson in Wedding Crashers. He's trying to make it happen um, with uh, uh, Catherine Mary Stewart, who plays Gwen, who's, who also works at the same company and ends up out on the Hamptons with them. Um, he should be the more earnest, more worried of the two. But there's some inherent miscalculation in here where he's also the worst person of the two. And he right. like lies a lot more, so it's impossible to root for him. So then I go back to Larry, and I'm like, am I supposed to like Larry? Because he seems like an insane person. More superficial, but lies less. That's a, an interesting point, and, and, a, and a good point. Um, yeah, it's, it never really draws that hard line between like who's the straight man and who's the funny one. Oh. Bernie's the and straight man. Well, then that's the thing, too. You not only have these two guys playing off each other, but then this dead body that refuses to deteriorate. Sarah. How much do you think? (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. 
How much do you think of it is Terry Kaiser, the body of uh, Bernie Lomax? How much do you think of it is him? And how much do you think of it's like a doll? I think it's Terry Kaiser, except for in the insane scenes where they're like dragging him behind the speedboat, which parenthetically is my favorite scene of the movie. But that's like pretty compelling dead body acting when he's like, they're like really tossing him around. He's like, you know, he's sack of potatoes. Oh, yeah. I think it's going back to like, you know, uh, the fucking James Lipton 101 of like, and now now pretend that you have no muscular system and he's terry kaiser's like great this is just like in school slump i guess yeah what is your favorite visual gag that andrew mccarthy wears long sleeve crew necks under hawaiian shirts okay Wow, that's that's impressive where there's a, a movie with the premise of a dead body is being kept uh, ambulatory by two losers. You pick what one of them is wearing. Well, for a heat wave movie, it was just a little distracting, if I may say. Um, you tell me yours. I, again, I think mine was the boat, dra- dragging him off the boat. I liked the really angry, douchey little kid who kept burying Bernie and then would otherwise just go out of his way to fuck with the two guys for seemingly no reason. It's a late addition. He's a late addition to the movie. He does come in late, but then he like provides that nice final tableau for the film. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Um, yeah, you remember how in the Willy Wonka episode I got upset about if it was real Germany? I think in this one, it was my wife, Sarah, who I forced to watch this with me early on a Sunday morning, who just every 10 minutes would look over to me and be like, when does rigor mortis set in? He wouldn't, Seriously. Flo- he wouldn't float if he weren't decomposing. Isn't this a heat wave movie, according to you guys? Why is he not decomposing? I really. Why doesn't he fucking smell? Should have watched that. That was myself. my yeah. huge question. Oh my God. He would smell so bad. Like, quickly. Yeah. He would smell bad that first night. Mm-hmm. The fact that they are living in a world where people don't recognize a corpse when they see one uh, is patently insane. But I've also like read some interesting takes on this movie that like it's kind of a sort of Stepford Wives-esque thing where people were so kind of blinded by the light of late 80s commercialism and capitalism like because he has all of these toys like he's there the big house is bernie like the golf cart that looks like a porsche is bernie like it's seeing him on that boat it's not seeing him and like that is maybe the the larger critique of the film what a searing takedown of zombie commercialism in the reagan era Absolutely. But I don't know that the movie ever like cares that no, much about I don't that. Think so. I well, think there, that's a pretty there, deep read. There is definitely a lot of the stupid stuff in the movie that like just for instance, like them getting distracted by really superficial things. Like there's this this joke at the end that's like semi-offensive if it weren't such a throwaway where Bernie was going to like frame the two guys in the murder-suicide by doing this sort of like dog day afternoon ripoff. Like one of them was taking $100,000 for a sex change surgery and then killed his partner. 
And Andrew McCarthy's like, look what he's making me out to be or whatever. And Jonathan Silverman's character is just like, he was going to kill us. And it's like a stupid joke, but you could feel like the defense of the movie is that all these characters are so shallow that they're like missing the forest for the trees here. And I think there is, there could be a little bit of that in terms of like, and just the, the decisions that characters make moment to moment are like, do we want to get on with our lives and potentially go after get either a get out of the situation or b get anything that a coherent character would want and andrew mccarthy's like i think there's more champagne over there like let's stay till morning and i'll get something to hold up bernie's hand with um something is keeping them there well it's also part of this you know kind of like late 80s early 90s like how long can i keep a gambit going movies <laughs> Uh-huh. Where it's like secret to my success, like a lot of Michael J. Fox movies are like sort of of this of this ilk. Um, parts that Andrew McCarthy didn't get. <laughs> I would even put Big into that mm-hmm. as well. Um, but yeah, this is definitely the weirdest premise of all of those. I think, but maybe that just speaks to my larger indictment that this is about the excesses, the blindness. Uh, from the excesses of the Reagan eighties. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, what I, was I like gonna... his boat, cool boat. I feel like I know how to drive a boat now after watching Andrew McCarthy. There you go. Um, what I was going to say though, was everything happening in the movie is patently insane, but did you ever feel like given that the movie was extremely like flat as well? The lack of noticing that Bernie's is dead is, you're right, it's insane. But I would agree with you that the guy tries to pretend he's cooler than he is to get with girl Gambit is, like, not that groundbreaking. Uh, Which feels almost, like, this movie feels like it has a lot in common with The Seven Year Itch. In that the premise of it kind of is maybe bigger than what the or maybe less than like what a script can do in a movie length narrative so both of i mean what i think what we found to run long about the first one you know i think with this one they're just trying to stuff it full of john hughes like how do i make the girl like me stuff mm-hmm. and that's really that's really what props up the because what's andrew mccarthy's like goal in this movie what's his desire like he has zero none None. He's just like, there's more food over there. Other than to not work. Yeah. He's like not trying to do anything. One could argue, you know, this is, it's, it's generous of us to call this a heat wave movie, but it is like the opening five minutes where they're like stepping in tar on the roof and going to the on-air conditioned office on a Sunday where it's just like, that's doing a lot of work where if they leave Bernie's compound, like that's all they have to go back to is heat wave stuff. Yeah, that's a classic climate change story. Mm-hmm. The haves and the have-nots. I think in time I will view this as a bad good. I would rewatch. I would rewatch immediately after. How much this- time? <laughs> well, it took four years to make Weekend at Bernie's two. So talk to me in twenty twenty-five, and I think I like McCarthy and Silverman will want to do it again. Um, so I'll, in that generous light, give it a bad good because it is crazy and, um, you know, ambitious in certain ways, at least in Terry Kaiser's acting. Um, yeah, I was maybe a little less high on it when I wrapped it up this morning, mostly because my wife was like, 
you wasted 95 minutes of my life and he didn't decompose once. No, his body is very flexible. It's like a G.I. Joe, but very big. And he doesn't even really like he gets a little dirty, but then they kind of like he like goes to take a nap and he's clean again. Like what happened there? They vacuum him. Yeah. Um, Shout out to Catherine Mary Stewart as Gwen. The often put upon actress yielding this pretty flimsy role of the love interest. Uh, But she's. She seems there for it, and I I actually kind of do like the moments where this movie shows you kind of like the creepy men. There's a lot of like creepy men. I mean, there's a lot of creepy men everywhere, but a lot of creepy men like in these three movies. Uh, And this one, like there's a scene where there's a party and these like older gentlemen are like trying to – they're shooting their shot, as it were, with Gwen. Uh, And she's like – no, thank you. Like this is this is sick. Uh, but I think having those moments where it's like not, they could have made Bernie's set like a lot more douchey and gross. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm saying. I give it a bad good. No, are there other? If I just say like sweaty movies or heat movies, are there great? Are there great images from other movies that come to mind that you that you thought about when we did this category? Anything? I think you could. Like, it deserves its own credit. Uh, Ted Danson's sweat from Body Heat. Um, Really the whole cast, but Danson is like, the sweat acting he can do is like the assistant district attorney or whatever. Uh, It's very impressive. Body Heat. Ted Danson's in Body Heat? Fuck yeah. Didn't we already do Body Heat? I just don't remember Ted Danson. He's like the second build guy. Not William Hurt. William Hurt is the protagonist of the film, and his sweat is I mean, pretty good. That you're, but good job. Yes, that's like the sweatiest. That's some of the best sweat ever. I had like Cat on a Hot Tin Roof has some great sweat in it. Speaking of like liquor on the porch, and I did say roof right now. To That was unintentional, but that is how I said it. I heard it. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't going to say anything. It's been too long. Um. You know, uh, Rear Window, which we've done on the show, that's... Uh, it's hot. There's a sweat river coming through that leg cast that uh, I would never want to experience myself. I feel like people are pretty sweaty down there, wherever they are in uh, Out of Time. Oh, yes. Well done, Florida. I feel like Sanaa Lathan does a lot of sweat acting in that one. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, we probably shouldn't get into like desert movies. That's its own thing, obviously. Well, I think there's like desert. There's like desert. There's also like bayou and or Florida Mm -hmm. heat. So Mm -hmm. this is just New York heat. We'll we'll travel around. That's my pledge to you. I keep throwing out Cujo for categories because they get so hot in the car and then it turns out Cujo is two hours and 44 minutes. I'm eternally glad we did this instead. Rabid dog save for that for two forty four. Save that for dog buddy pictures. <laughs> Turner and Hooch is a comedy. Mm, it's actually a dog buddy picture. I don't know about you, Chance, but after this podcast, I'm pretty hot. Mm-hmm. I thank you for uh, continuing to to sweat out these ideas with me. It won't be. Uh, it won't hopefully be the last summer that we. 
have to sit in on-air conditioned rooms because we don't want background noise on these recordings, damn it. That's our commitment to you, dear listener. That's right. Because I can't edit that shit out. Well, Chance, please do not cheat on your wife (laughs) while she's away on vacation this summer. for that advice. Um, I'll try not to prop up any of my dead bosses to grant to get access to their beach house and a third personal reference to do the right thing is not necessary i bid you a good podcast and i'll see you soon bye buddy hot town summer in the city back of my neck getting dirt and gritty then down isn't it a pity doesn't seem to be a shadow in the city all around people looking half dead walking on the sidewalk harder than a match yeah. but at night it's different world